welcome to this week's episode of Western Reaches. Um, this is episode 28, our first post-E3 discussion. And um, so, first of all, we're, uh, we would like to thank Tashi Station for hosting us. This is Tashi Station's podcast about books, games, and all sorts of geeky things. Our main topic this, uh, this week is going to be Horizon Zero Dawn, because Saf finished it. And I'm excited to actually talk about the end. Um, we will uh, have a spoiler section, so when you get to the end, we'll just tell you when to... Uh, when to take off if you don't want to hear spoilers. Um, yeah, so anyway, I'm Megan Krause. I'm here with my co-host, Seth. Hello. Hello. So, yeah, um, I have not been playing too much this week. Um, I purchased Monument Valley 2 because I really enjoyed the first Monument Valley. and just It was fun. It was colorful. It had a nice story. But I haven't touched the second one yet. And that's partially because I can't really find a time in my day between my work and my commute and things to play a mobile game. And I know the idea of a mobile game is sort of that it's easier to access than something (laughs) on a console. But because, like, I guess public transit would be a good time, but I don't really do that. So, like, I didn't really find a time to play it yet. So my main impression of that so far is when are mobile games even for? I use them to procrastinate when I'm trying to not write when I should be writing. Um, but actually, I've started listening to podcasts more, so I haven't even been doing that that much. But I am so jealous that you can get Monument Valley 2 because it's not out on Android, and it probably won't be out on Android for like another year. And, oh, no. Oh, I want to play it so bad. It looks so gorgeous. It does look really good, and it's all about like a mother-daughter relationship, which yes. I like that as, a, as an idea. My roommate has played it a little bit, and she's like, I'll hear her going, ooh. <laughs> and like she seems oh. to be really into it but at some point i'll find it because like i get distracted by social media and like i get distracted if i'm coming home i want to play a console game so i'll have to make time for it yeah i played like the uh forgotten shores dlc on the first game a while back like not too long ago and it got me so emotional like the storytelling in that game is so good even though there's no words at all it really was it was really really affecting yeah so most of the rest of my gaming this week was a kind of uh, just revisiting things that E3 reminded me of because I watched the Microsoft presentation, I watched the Sony presentation, and uh, I did not watch the um, the Sunday night, I think it was Bethesda presentation because it was at midnight my time, so I was not. Oh, that's fair. That. There wasn't but that much there anyways. It was kind of a disappointing one. Was it? Was yeah, I, I watched that one like, they were like, Skyrim's on, like, three new consoles now. Yay! Yeah, you can play Skyrim on anything. On your yep. record player. Yep. Which is, like, <laughs> which is fine. Um, I was really excited about the Dishonored 2 DLC because it's been a while oh, yeah. since we heard anything from them. And, like, it's called Death of the Outsider. It's about Billy Lurk. Those are things I'm interested in. Yeah, um, yeah. I saw that and I thought of you and Jay and I was like, I think I think they'll be excited about this one. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's, I don't know if Emily's in it. I think it's moving a little bit away from Emily's story, but um, Billy has this cool, like, mechanical arm and, a, like, she looks really cool. So, and I'm excited to learn more about the Void because there were some hints in Dishonored 2 and then in the novel about, like, things are changing in the Void and we'll, we'll see. 
Yeah. Most most of the things that I was excited for after E3 were sequels. And the one, so uh, Tacoma was this like space station mystery game. I'm still excited for that. That was an original property that I'm definitely interested in. Um, yes. And we got a new trailer for that. But most of the others were were sequels. Um, the new Assassin's Creed kind of caught my attention. And a lot of people, like several of my friends who haven't touched that series in a long time, have said they'll come back for Origins, which is interesting because I think Assassin's Creed was very stale for a while. Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of drifted away because it kind of just didn't do anything interesting. Like, I can't think of any of my friends. Oh, actually, no. What was the last one that came out? It was like... I've lost track, really. God, I don't even know. I have one friend who plays the new games every time they come out, and that's like my only knowledge of it because nobody else plays it. Yeah, but this one, it looks gorgeous. It's returning to that kind of ancient desert setting. The story is how the assassin order was formed so i hope it has some more of that like mythology so that that looks good and you get to climb on pyramids so that's cool i feel real bad because um i was watching i think it was the ea presentation and it was like relatively early here and i woke up late so i was like two minutes late to it already and i was sitting i was like standing in my room like debating whether or not to run off and make breakfast and then my dad was in the kitchen so i was like dad can you make me some toast please and he was like okay and then assassin's creed came on screen and i was like never mind it's a game i don't care about i can do it myself and i felt really bad about that but like ah, uh-huh. uh, i just i never got through the first assassin's creed game and they look really fun but i just cannot get into it my like experience with Assassin's Creed is colored very much by the fact that my roommate in college was really into them. So she would play, mm. and she's a completionist, so she would collect all the feathers and all the whatever. Oh, God. So she would be playing forever, and I'd just be there, like either doing homework or you know doing whatever. So I I knew a ton about the first one, and she was like really into the fandom. But I didn't play myself that often. I would occasionally, um, and then later on. It was kind of the same thing with the with the Ezio trilogy, where, like, I know it through my friends. So, but this is <laughs> the first one that really kind of grabbed me in terms of the gameplay and the, uh, it, it looks gorgeous. Like, the landscape looks really nice. I think I'll actually enjoy playing it myself. Yeah, and the gameplay with that hawk looks really cool, too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I, it doesn't make much sense. Like, <laughs> somebody described mm. it as he uses it as a drone. Like, how can he... <laughs> How does he see through its eyes? Like, I know- Is it I magic? It's, yeah, yeah. I love that it's literally eagle vision. But, like, is he yeah. psychic with the eagle? I, I need explanation. I need background for this. <laughs> I always get kind of weirded out when a game, like, does something that you're like, is that, is that magic? Is, is magic happening in this game now? Yeah, like, is this really happening? Or is it- <laughs> You could explain it by, like, the characters, you know, he- seized by the motion of the shadow or like you know you could create a physical (laughs) rationale but i'm not sure if that's what they're going for or not so we'll see yeah definitely (laughs) but the fact that he's an actual falconer is like really cool i'm surprised it took them so long to actually do something like that but it's cool that they're actually doing it that's true because they've had the bird motif like woven through the whole series and yeah not so much with literal birds yeah. <laughs> um, the other, speaking of literal birds, the uh, 
Ori and the Will of the Wisps trailer with the cute owl was just, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't ex- expecting an Ori sequel. So it yeah. was lovely. It, I still haven't finished the first one, which I'm very ashamed. I tried to jump back into it recently, but I'm on the like gravity section and it's not a good place to come back after you haven't played for a while because the controls are essentially backwards or like oriented to the walls. So it it was tricky, but I might uh, I might like replay that because the the sequel looks really nice. Ori has been on my list to play forever. Like I even have it in my Steam library, and I just haven't picked it up yet. I feel really bad about it. It looks so pretty, but I can never bring myself to want to play that particular game. Hmm. And the other thing about that one, I think, is that it's short, but and like forgive me if I'm repeating myself, like but it's difficult it's yeah it's really pretty it's like nice and pleasant but it's hard it takes a lot of timing and like it always you know until i got completely stuck had a really nice learning curve but now i'm a bit i'm a bit reluctant to go back (laughs) yeah that makes sense yeah but the actual thing that I was, like, yelling about was the Horizon Zero Dawn expansion, which I didn't yes. expect to get one this quickly. Neither. I was so... When they actually came out with, like, the Gorilla logo, I was like, wait, what? Yeah, because... So we're just now getting a Dishonored 2 DLC, and that game came out winter of last year, and now Horizon already has one. I don't know if they thought that it was... They realized it was really popular and went, okay, we've got to put something out. Or if this was already planned, I don't know. It's hard to know with that kind of stuff. I guess Bethesda at least is like, they probably, I don't know, they've got different studios within it, but they probably like, because it's one big studio, maybe they have less precision on one thing. I don't know. That's not making any sense. But Gorilla just has Horizon that's working on at the moment, I think. So they could probably like go in and do that. And they've probably been working on it since the game came out. Like... I I kind of should have expected something about Horizon. Like, when it came up, I wasn't really that surprised that there was a Horizon thing. But at the same time, I never predicted there would be a Horizon DLC at this thing. I wonder if it's sort of a passion project for Guerrilla 2. Like, they always they mm. seem very almost surprised that it did so well. And are kind of like, we're almost, we're almost looking for an excuse to make more. Yeah, I think so. I think so, a little bit. And I'm really excited about it, because, like... I miss playing in that world already. It was, like, I'd basically done everything except for, like, a couple quests I needed to go track down and actually do, and the hunting grounds, which I'm never going to actually do. Um, But I didn't really have much more to do in the game, so I was like, I want to play it more, but I have no reason to. And now this is coming out, I'm like, now I have a reason to play more. I'm so glad you like it. I mean, we'll talk about um, (laughs) this more later, but I know you were kind of lukewarm on it at first. Yeah, I mean, I'm still lukewarm on some aspects, but the whole game, like, itself, I really love playing it. It's, it's a good game. Yeah, and this, so the, this particular hook that they're using is this, the Banuk city, right? And I love the Banuk, like, they were my favorite. They, like, they just look really cool. I like their sort of attitude. And uh, they always mention their city as this, like, strange frozen place, and I figured that was just flavor you know it's just here's a mysterious thing we might one day explore but it's probably not a priority because the karja are like the the most important tribe essentially but no it's a banuk dlc and i'm so glad yeah i didn't really expect more banuk either like they were kind of there and i thought they were like exciting set dressing sort of with like some cool quests i didn't think they'd ever actually focus on them as like a main aspect of the story just kind of like you because they have the karja and everything and 
also, yeah, I just completely didn't expect it at all. But when they were like, Banook, I was like, yes! Oh my god, this is so cool! Yeah, it was a great, a great gift. Thank you to them for that. <laughs> I just, I hope that if they have more Banook collectibles in this DLC, that they make the climbing better. Because trying to get all of those collectibles was a pain in the ass. Yeah, that's another thing I didn't do much of. I I didn't get the um the map for them until much later, and for no particular reason. But yeah, I didn't feel like any great need to get those. They're not super exciting, honestly. Like, I'll talk about that more later, I guess. But yep. yeah, they're not they're not exciting. Yeah. So, what are you looking forward to? Uh, from E three, the definitely Tacoma, and also. The Frozen Wilds, because, yeah. Um, I'm really excited about the game A Way Out, which they showed at EA, I think, um, which is like the co-op prison escape game with the two sad dads, because I've been looking, like, I love couch co-op games. I love narrative-driven couch co-op games, because a lot of the co-op games you can get nowadays are just, like, kind of multiplayer, like, fun things that don't really have much story, and they're fun, but I like story in my games, especially when I'm playing them with friends, and so seeing an actual, like, when they announced it was, like, couch co-op, local co-op, I was just so excited, and it looks really cool because it has, like, the dynamic, dynamic split screen, so it, like, changes depending on what the characters are doing and where it is in the story, which looks amazing because there's so many, like, narrative design possibilities with that that I can't even think of, but I know the game is going to do them because it's made by the guy who did Brothers A Tale of Two Sons, which I haven't played, but I know a lot about because everyone talks about how its mechanics influence the, the narrative. I'm going a little into my narrative nerd right now, but this game looks really, really cool. And I'm so excited to play it and also take a million notes while I'm playing it. <laughs> I've definitely heard really good things about the mechanics. It seems really creative. It, it's not quite my style, but I can see why people are talking it up so much. Yeah, like, it's not really the kind of game I would normally go for. If it was just a single-player kind of story game, I'd be like, nah, not not my jam. But because it's local co-op and also because it has the interesting narrative design stuff, I'm, I'm sold. Like, I don't even care what the story is. I don't care who the characters are. I'm sold just on that stuff. And I really need to play Brothers A Tale of Two Sons because everyone keeps telling me about it. Um, but it looks sad, so I've been avoiding it because I don't want to play a sad game. Uh, but I'm super excited about that. I'm also... Really, really psyched about the Shadow of the Colossus remake because Shadow of the Colossus is one of my favorite games. It's like top three favorite game, biggest influence on my like game work. Not on my game work, but on like where I want to go one day with my game work. Um, it's gorgeous. It's amazing. It's so good. And when I was playing it, when I, when I first played it when I was younger, I always played it like, I, I always had a PS2 when everyone else had a PS3 and everything, so I was playing games late. And I'd look at it and I'd be like, imagine this game in next-gen graphics. And now it's going to be on a PS4 with, like, next-gen graphics. And I'm so psyched about that because it's going to be absolutely gorgeous. And it's going to be terrifying because the monsters are going to be huge and actually look really good. And, oh, I just love that game. And I haven't been able to play it for, like, 10 years because I haven't owned a console for it. But I'm going to get a PS4, so I'm going to be able to get this game. And I'm really psyched about that. Awesome. This is, I feel like, one of those games where you look at the remastered version and you go, oh, but that's just what it looked like. Like, that's yeah. what it looked like in my head the whole time. But, and I haven't, again, I mostly knew Shadow of the Colossus through other people. I didn't play it much myself. But what I remember of it is it probably not what I, like, what it really looked like, you know? Hmm. But it had such a presence that it kind of il illustrate it fills in the blanks, and now we're gonna get this. Yeah, really I remember. Version. 
I remember being blown away by it when I was a kid and playing it because it was like, it was really gorgeous for its time. But then when I was playing it next to other games, which were higher end, I was like, it's so pretty, but imagine if it was even prettier. And like, I don't know how old I was then, like 10 or something. No, I would have been like 13 or something. Like my 13 year old self's mind would have been blown by this. (laughs) Like she would have been so psyched. It does sense of scale so well. Like, yeah. Yeah. There was that, there was the, the God of War trailer, which I have no interest in but the uh the serpent right the huge like world serpent i was mm. thinking like oh that'd be a cool thing to fight like how would it work to like fight something so huge and that's exactly what you do in shadow of the colossus yep there is a giant water snake in that and that was the worst for me because i am i used to be worse but i am terrified of swimming in video games just in video games i'm fine with water in real life but in video games i cannot handle being in water and so the water based battles in shadow of the colossus were so hard for me oh man and also from ea oh not ea e3 in general um i think it was the microsoft conference um they showed that game uh the Artful Escape of Francis Vendetti, which I've talked about on here before because I played it at PAX Australia last year, and they showed it at the Microsoft thing at E3, and I got so excited because it's like, it's a really cool Australian game, and it didn't get its Kickstarter funding um, when it did a Kickstarter campaign, like, a while back, and I was kind of like watching it like, please get funding somehow, I really want this game to happen, and then... And then I guess they've got Microsoft behind them now because they're at E3 and they're like, we're happening. And I am so excited about that because that game is going to be so cool. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I wonder what that story was of them getting picked up. Yeah, I guess maybe somebody saw them at PAX or they were talking to publishers or something. I'm not really sure. They're being, I think they're being published by uh, the same people who, Annapurna, I think, who did the What Remains of Edith Finch and um, some other games, I don't remember. But they're like a publishing company that seems to do like cool looking indie games that have really interesting stories. So I, I'm very excited that they're happening because that game is just, especially after because there was that game The Last Night, which looked really cool. And then it turned out that the developer of that is like super Gamergate, like may not be so much anymore, but he was not great. And it looks like his really terrible ideas of progressiveness are like a huge basis for how his cyberpunk world works, which, um, kind of takes away the punk of the cyber in there so it's like the more i hear about the story of that game the less i want to play it because it sounds awful so after the disappointment of that it was like really exciting to see something that looks gorgeous and that i know is going to have like a cool story already on stage after that yeah that that cyberpunk game i i sort of was on the outskirts of that whole conversation because it didn't look like a game i would i would play anyway but i feel like that's sort of the core of the issue that sort of taking something that's supposed to be subversive and kind of uh, sanitizing it is not yeah. really what you want to do with that genre. Well, I guess we'll see. I've heard that he apologized, that like some of his comments were from several years ago, but I don't, I, I haven't really looked into it myself. He had some not so right, like people found comments that were more recent than that. Like it's, like he could have gotten better and it's entirely possible his game won't be awful, but I don't have much hope considering like it's not super easy to just overhaul the entire story of a game um i don't know i have mixed feelings on (laughs) people's like i don't know when you write something like like cyberpunk or science fiction like future science fiction you've really got to know what's already in the genre and what the actual like knowledge of what 
these genres are before you do it. Like the idea of like using progressive feminism gone mad for cyberpunk just totally takes away from what the point of it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that goes into something else that I didn't really have on the notes here, but I do think is important to talk about. There, there's been a lot of discussion about um, like Native American designs used in Horizon Zero Dawn. And mm. that's been a, a conversation that I think has been very illuminating in ways. Um, it, it wasn't, when I first saw those designs, I, I thought, well, they look like sort of your cavemen, like your kind of um, stereotypical Paleolithic kind of era. That's what I was thinking as soon as I saw it. But I don't know, did you have any thoughts about that? Um, I don't have a lot of thoughts about that because I'm kind of, being in New Zealand, it's kind of something that doesn't really touch me, like my area of where I know things, I guess. So I've kind of watched it from the outside and um, like tried to learn as much as I can about it because I think, I don't know, when I saw it, I kind of the same thing as you, I was thinking like Paleolithic, is that the right word? Um, <laughs> cavemen kind of thing. Um, but I also don't have much knowledge of like history or that kind of stuff in general. So I'm I kind of just I see stuff that looks old old timey and I'm like okay that's just old timey. I don't have a p- p- specific knowledge of areas and eras in those areas if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it as generic but like especially as like a white person who maybe like isn't the best commentator on that. I I thought that we should at least bring it up that we acknowledge that it's a conversation that's going on. Yeah, definitely. That's always important. Yep. And um, I did actually play a game because I finished Horizon and I was kind of like, I can play other games now. And then I didn't really feel like playing any other games. Um, But I finally started playing. Well, I finally played through uh, What Remains of Edith Finch, which is a game that came out relatively recently, which is, I think I mentioned before, because it's published by Annapurna, whatever their name is. Um, And it's basically a game about a girl going back to her old family house and uh, finding the stories of how her family members died, basically, like different family members at different times. Um, and so it's a very narrative heavy game. It's quite linear and you, it's it, like each sequence for like the stories of the different characters, you go into a sequence for their stories and each sequence tells the story in a different way. So you kind of experience a lot of different <laughs> types of gameplay while playing this one game. It's really interesting and it has a really, interesting way of approaching the topic of death and of people you love dying because it it sounds like it's going to be a really miserable depressing heartbreaking game but somehow it is it feels really uplifting and beautiful um the stories themselves never put blame on anyone they never make it seem like an awful thing that's happened they always somehow make it even it's not necessarily happy it's not the worst thing like it's it's oh, I can't think of the right way to put it, but is it like bittersweet or like wistful? Yeah, it's kind of bittersweet. Some of them are quite wistful. It's always a little like you don't feel awful about what's happened, even though it's an awful thing. And it's a really <laughs> I didn't expect to feel as good as I did coming out of that game because it's it's a horrible sounding game. Um, but I came out of it feeling like light. It was kind of cathartic, but not really cathartic in any way. And it was just gorgeous. There's one particular sequence in there, which I think a lot of people have written about, which is um, 
like the cannery scene kind of thing. And it is amazingly done. It's so good. And I want to talk about that more, but you haven't played it, have you? No, it sounds really okay. good though. I'm, I'm interested in how they kind of create that atmosphere. You definitely should. It's a really cool game. And I think it's just, I, so many games have so much death in them. That's just kind of either no, doesn't mean anything because you're just killing random people or it's supposed to be like a heavy, awful thing. And this game does approach it in a totally different way. And it told some beautiful stories about a family that was messed up and probably needed therapy. And it still managed to not make them sound like awful people or t- like to blame them for being as bad as they were. They were just kind of people. And it's it's so good. You should play it. Oh, interesting. Are they the same people, the same developer that did Unfinished Swan? Huh. I have no clue what that is. It's, uh, I think that was the one that was told entirely in silhouettes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, a magical realism story. Cool, I'll, uh, I'll bookmark that. Yeah. I was almost disappointed by how there, there wasn't, like, a really great new, like, kind of like I said before, an original property that I could be really excited about. But um, I am looking forward to Tacoma kind of for that reason, for that, like, it looks like a quieter sci-fi game, which is what I want it to be. Like, I want, it's it's from the people that did Gone Home, and it's, like, all an exploration. And I really hope it gets that kind of isolation and, like, that that wistful feeling, but in a sci-fi setting that will, like, give me cool things to look at. Yeah, I'm really excited for Tacoma. I haven't played Gone Home yet. Um, that's another one that's on my list. But Tacoma looks really cool, and I've been following it for a while. And I like that even though they've shown it at a few places, they haven't really shown much of what it is actually about. So I, I'm i keen to go into that with like no knowledge whatsoever. Yeah, and I mean, it's coming up soon. I was surprised to see it's uh, August 2nd is the, the release date. It does seem like they've changed it quite a bit from when it was first announced. The, the style that they showed at E3 was a little cartoonier than I thought the previous, like, press material and previous uh, screenshots were. Did you notice that? Or Yeah, I kind of noticed that. I didn't really think about it too much, but I looked at it, I was like, that looks a little bit different from what I've seen before. Yeah, which is which is fine. Like it still looks good. I wonder, and it it might be it might be nothing. They might not have had like any big changes, but uh, I wonder if there were. Yeah, I'm when oh my god, I'm so excited that it's coming out soon because I really uh, I want it so bad. Yeah, I've been looking forward to that for a long time. Mm. All right, so um, yeah, other than that, I haven't been playing too much. I'm slowly, slowly going through Andromeda, but I'll probably, at this rate, I don't know when I'm going to finish it. So yeah, do you have anything else you want to add about games? No, I basically was just playing Horizon and then Edith Finch. I have a bunch of, yeah, little indie games I'm going to play now, and I still need to play through Andromeda. I haven't touched it since I went traveling earlier this year, which I feel really bad about. Uh, well, it's it's long. Um, <laughs> if uh, if listeners want to ask any other questions about E three or something, you know, feel free to send twi- Twitter uh, tweets. That's the word, <laughs> or emails, or or what have you. So um, let's let's go to books. I'm gonna kind of switch this. Saf, do you mind going first and talking about which books you've read recently? Yeah, sure thing. I um. I read Aurora recently, which is a book by Kim Stanley Robertson, I think. Um, yeah, I love that have book. Have you, you, you read it? Yes, I, I didn't 
Yes, I did. Didn't recognize the name <laughs> at first, and then went, "Oh yeah, that's the one. It's the one about how traveling off of Earth is a terrible idea." Yeah, I didn't know. All I knew about it was there was an AI character in it because um, one of my friends recommended it to me, and she knows I love AI, so she was like, "This book has an AI in it. It's really cool." And I was like, "Okay," and then forgot entirely about it until it arrived in the library and I picked it up and it's it is it's a really cool book about like the idea of humans trying to travel interstellar and like colonize other planets it's actually a really terrible idea and traveling for a long time on a small ship is a bad idea because people do not turn out so well and it was a really cool it was a really cool exploration of that idea alongside an AI learning like consciousness and self like self-awareness through telling a narrative like that was its, its its big thing was it was trying to tell a narrative a coherent narrative um in a way that people could learn a history and it was really really well done it was so cool because the first the chapters are kind of like parts and the first chapter or the first couple chapters are very much like it's telling you the story it's not really showing anything it's just telling and then it kind of slowly gets better and better at telling the story and it's just it's so well done it's so good and i loved the characters so much yeah i love that that ai very much yes oh my god i love them so much <laughs> and it uh so the thing i always tell people if they're gonna read aurora is don't google kim stanley robinson because he wrote an essay that was almost exactly the same as the novel just about i don't know like forty nine thousand words shorter um, oh my it, god! <laughs> uh, it talks about that idea that that humans only have one planet, and we're never going to be able to colonize another planet in time to not have to solve the climate issues that we have on Earth now. So you sh we should really solve our climate issues here. And um, at the same time, it's a really great sci-fi story. It doesn't it doesn't sound preachy. It explores a lot of other ideas too, but that's kind of the core of it. Yeah, it's absolutely not preachy, and it's uh, what's the word I want? I lost it. Um, damn, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a uh, damn. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is the direction you were going in, but it's not slow, but it's very deliberate. Yeah, it's definitely that. Like, and you can never tell where it's actually going to go with the story because it. The story changes so much from, like, little decisions sometimes. Um, like, I thought the entire story was just going to be them getting to that planet. I didn't think it was going to go past that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. But really yeah. good if you're interested in AI, if you're interested in the idea of generation ships, or if you're interested in, in climate. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. It's a really different take on this kind of stuff, because... A lot of sci-fi is like, they get to another planet, yay, or that kind of stuff. But it's kind of about the idea of Earth still being important. And that's not really a thing you see all that much when it's about interstellar travel. It's always about finding somewhere else or like being on the ship or something. And this does that, but it explores very different ideas. Yeah, definitely good. Yeah, so I read that, and I really loved it. And I also read um, Seven Surrenders, which is the sequel to Two Like the Lightning. And in hindsight, I should have looked up, when I was reading Two Like the Lightning, I should have looked up whether or not this book was part of a series, and I did not know. I thought it was a standalone book. And then I got to the end of that book, and I was, like, really close to the end, 
And I was thinking, how can this book wrap up this entire story with only these few pages left? And then I got to the end and it was like, book continues and seven surrenders. And then I, and I was like, okay, yep, okay, it has a sequel. And at that point, I should have looked up whether or not it was a trilogy or something because I thought this book was, <laughs> I thought this book was the last book and I got near the end and I was thinking, there's no way it can wrap up the story in these few pages. And I got to the end and it, and it said, there's a second book, like another book after this. And so I finally looked it up and it's a four book, it's a four book series. Oh no. <laughs> Which I'm glad I looked up because I would have just assumed it was a trilogy and just read the next book and then been like, why, why? Um, yep. But it, uh, I kind of have the same problems with the first book that it's very focused on like romance and sexuality and the characters are very unbelievable characters. Like none of them act like real people at all, but it's still such an interesting and intriguing mystery. Like I want to know what happens and I want to understand the world that it's set in because it's like a future earth that's still kind of familiar, but it's still quite different. And um, I just want to understand the politics and the way this world works because it does, sometimes it just does stuff. And I just sit there for a while going, how, how did this even happen? How does this, how does this work? How does any of this work? Um, it's, it's weird and I kind of dig it, but I also just want to finish the series so it's out of my life forever. <laughs> that's, that's two very conflicting emotions. <laughs> um, so yeah. you talked about characters behaving in ways that didn't really make sense. Is that connected to the way the the plot zigs around? Or I guess because I feel like that description could be either the writing is unrealistic or the writing is creating a really consistent but really strange society and the characters are following that. Is it either one of those? It's definitely consistent. The way everyone acts is very consistent with the world. Um, it's just that everyone within the world doesn't feel like a real person, kind of, if that makes sense. And I guess it works because it's supposed to be a different society to what we're in now. And it's just told a lot through comparisons to past societies, like through history, because it's very, it's very history and that kind of stuff heavy as well. It's very theoretical, um, but in a kind of fun way. Not entirely fun, but in, a, in an easy way to understand. And it is also told by a narrator who is probably unreliable, which probably doesn't help with that. So it, there's a lot of stuff happening in that book. And my main issue is just that characters do very things that I'm just like, no normal person would say that or act like that. But then again, these are people not from our society. So they're, they're far future people. So it's entirely possible that in that society they will. And none of it feels, it never feels inconsistent with the writing itself. Like the book is very solid. It's not bad. It's a, it's a really well-written book and it's, it's good, but it, I, maybe it's just not my thing. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I have no clue. It's they, they are good books, and I can see why people recommended them to me. Um, and I am really curious how this is going to end because I cannot predict it at all. Hmm. And I guess you'll find out in book four. Yep, in like three years or whatever when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally finished reading iron council which i've been reading for like since maybe december uh, if you see me if you're like friends with me on goodreads you can check that fact i don't remember but <laughs> I, i've been like kind of intentionally reading it very slowly because it's like your quintessential china mayville novel where the writing is really dense every sentence is full of like really scintillating really uh diverse visuals um it's all about this sort of train that 
the, the people that um, work on the train have liberated it from the railway company and they lay the track down as they go and they've formed this whole society on the train. And it's not, not quite in a um, Snowpiercer sort of way, but in a like fantasy sort of way. And um, it's also about the sort of function of homegrown rebellion of like um, an anarchist movement and how that affects a city and how what actually happens when the anarchists might win. So China Mayville has very strong political influences throughout his books. And I don't know all the history of this like anarchist socialist sort of thing that, that he is really he knows the history of all these movements and the story is very much based in his knowledge of how these things work. I, I don't know how they work, but uh, <laughs> it was sort of about how those kind of movements can be affected by by wartime. In this case, there's this other city, this other country that's kind of always on the verge of attacking uh, New Krobuzan. So it, it was like, it was really good. It was your quintessential uh, China Mayville novel. So if you like his stuff, um, I would even recommend starting with this one instead of starting with uh, Perdido Street Station. But I could not get into Perdido Street Station for some reason. It's very highly regarded. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> um, I actually haven't read any China Mayville, but every time you talk about him, I really want to read his books. I think you would you would like them. This one, the center relationship, like the romantic relationship, was two men, and it was one who was almost who was like obsessed with the other, um, in a sort of almost like worship kind of way. Like he was the prophet, and this guy was a disciple, and um, the the uh, the leader guy kind of tolerated him and like would respond to him in a romantic way, but they were never really together. And it was a, it was definitely a different type of, of relationship that, that I thought was kind of interesting. That sounds, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Like I not, did, oh, what? I, I just requested it at the library. So I guess I'll read that book. <laughs> <laughs> I do think if you have any questions, I can answer questions or whatever. I think it's a decent place to start, but I also adored the scar, which is the middle one in the loosely linked uh, New Crobazon series. Yeah, so that was good, and that was that was the last China Mayville novel. I have read all of them now, so he needs to write another one. <laughs> nice. Yep. Um, and then, so I read On Writing, which is Stephen King's book about the writing life. Oh, I started reading that a while back, and then I didn't finish it because i had to return to the library how how is it well the the first half of it is essentially an autobiography um he says specifically this is not going to be an autobiography and then it kind of is but it's it's really (laughs) well written it's like that stephen king like kind of edge of your seat sort of thing but it's not a book about writing but then the second half really is a book about writing um and i did find some of it really useful like i took notes um he talks about uh he's describing a poem and saying it's it's sloppy because it's based on the assumption that such general words as loneliness mean the same thing to all of us and i hadn't really thought that that's the reason why like words like loneliness come off as kind of vacuous but it was that was really interesting um 
he talked about uh, what he called, quote, the over logic, the moment of being able to tie everything in your story together when you see how everything kind of comes together, um, which is something I could like really identify with. That's always like a fun moment. And then mm. um, talking about uh, drawing story from characters and that advice, I, you see all over, you see the advice, well, you need to make basically a list of like, here's who your character is, here's what they want, here's what they don't want, here's like the struggles that are getting going to get in their way. That, I always had trouble with that, that always felt very inorganic to me, and uh, he described a way to do it that felt a lot more natural, where it's character based in that the image of the character leads to a question. Like, you'll see them, and then you'll see, well, like, you'll start asking, why are they there? Why aren't they somewhere else? Like, how? what are the inconsistencies in their story? And that kind of made me understand that, like, very basic advice in a completely different direction. Yeah, I've always struggled with that kind of thing as well, because, it. yeah, I agree, it feels very inorganic. And then you write a list and you start writing the actual character, and you're like, this list means nothing now. What is the point of this thing? Um, so I think, yeah, framing yeah. it from a different way is definitely good, because not everyone thinks the same way as well, and nobody writes the same way, so it's interesting to see how someone like Stephen King does it. For sure, and those kind of lists, like they always felt like they exist in a vacuum to me, and so mm. what his this technique does is... It, it completely removes that like vacuum and just your character becomes the center of your, your idea. Um, the other thing he, he talks about sort of the practical side of writing, which is that he usually, or at the time this book was written, he usually did 2000 words a day and like writing is his day job. So he's not like doing anything else, but, um, and he finishes novels in about three months, but the, which is like, to me, that's incredibly impressive. But he said he has to do it that way because otherwise they start to feel boring. Like, he, he if he doesn't finish them by then, they start to feel stale. And, like, that was kind of just, like, it, like, I went, well, it's not that it's super impressive. It's that he can't do it any other way, you know? Mm. Yeah. I can kind of understand that. When I write things for too long as well, they kind of get that feeling. Yeah, definitely. I, I can understand that, too. And I never really thought of it as a way to, like, speed yourself up before. But it, it can be a strength. Yeah, this book sounds really, like, it has some really good lessons in it. it. It really was good. It was, the beginning was a little bit slow. Um, You know, it depends on, I'm not like, I don't read Stephen King books for fun usually, but I, if you know, <laughs> if you're into him more, you will probably find some really interesting stuff in the, like, autobiography section. But just purely for writers, the it's definitely useful advice. It was, it was funny. It was actually in the, um, summer reading list for my library. So when I got it, it was a, like, school version almost that had like a sticker on it that said like summer reading for like high school or whatever and it just made me seem like it made me feel like I'm, I'm way late to this book I should really have read this in high school apparently but yeah. yeah I know it's like one of I think it's one of the books that's on like the Pixar intern list or something for them to read something mm -hmm. like that it's, it's one of those highly regarded books that yeah storytellers are supposed to read and i've never read it yeah, well i i see why it's so highly regarded mm, yeah i think i'm gonna have to actually pick that up again because i kind of i got out a whole bunch of books about writing and screenwriting as a craft and then like read the first few pages of a lot of them and then had to return them because i was traveling and they were due back at the library so i never actually got them back out again so maybe i should do that i've been doing more of those lately but you have to digest them i think you have to mm. yeah, i wouldn't want to read two at once or something yeah, you definitely can't, like, 
and you you can't read to it once and you can't like read it all in one go as well you kind of got to read a bit and then understand it and then read some more and then understand that too and it's a, it's a long process to get through those books sometimes yeah yeah um so the other one that I that I finished was Kasserith by C.J. Cherry, which is the first in the Faded Sun trilogy. And this is a book, a series that she herself is particularly proud of. Like, I think she actually has a comment on Goodreads, like, I actually really like these. <laughs> um, and it's sort of her, it's got the same kind of tropes she used in the Foreigner series, which I really liked. But there are about a billion of them, so I didn't finish it. Um... And it, where it's like a desert planet with these sort of elf-like aliens, and they they're in this sort of warrior society, but they're dying out because they've been mercenaries in a war against the humans, and now the war is over, and they're kind of trying to pick up the remains of their society. And uh, it's it's really enjoyable. Her writing is just so detailed and so um, carefully paced. But that also means that it's really slow. Like, you could use this as an example of how to get more words out of your story if you need to (laughs) reach a certain word count. (laughs) Um, So, it might not be for everyone, but I really like her style, and uh, I really enjoyed this. The, The aliens aren't... She's really good at the psychology of aliens. Like, they they think in a very alien way. But they look really human. <laughs> so, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I was a little disappointed by how, like, humanoid they are. But there's some great, like, misunderstandings. Or, like, one species assumes one thing and the other is assuming another thing. The psychology of the, the contact is really good. They just, every once in a while, I kept just picturing them as, like, Legolas. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that was that was good. Um, I, I've heard from Goodreads that that trilogy is hard to find now. I have a used version, but uh, if you can find it, it's uh, it's good. Oh, so it's a trilogy. It is, yeah. It's the Faded Sun trilogy, and I actually got it in um, a paper. There's a paperback collection that has all three of them. So I'm just gonna start the next one as soon as I can. Awesome. I might actually try and track those down because when you said the other series had like a billion books, I was like, no, I can't handle <laughs> books like series that have a long running series of books, but trilogies, trilogies are good. Foreigner is really good, but if you want a place to start with her that's a little less intimidating, this is a good one. All right, cool. My library doesn't have it, so I'll drag it down another way. <laughs> cool. And uh, 40,000 in Gehenna is another one that I really like by her, but that's, Ooh. yeah, that one's, that one's a bit dark. Yeah. Um, cool. So anything else about books? Mm, not that I can think of. Oh, I did start reading June, and I do like it so far. So I'll probably talk about that when I'm further through. Oh, yeah. We, we were talking about this before, how I love Dune. I, I love the fear mantra. Like, it was one of the first, like, really intellectual kind of sci-fi that I read. And uh, I have no desire to revisit it. I feel like I wouldn't <laughs> like the female characters now, or I, I wouldn't like how they were written. Um, I feel like it wouldn't be the same. So I don't plan on rereading it, but I'm interested on uh, to see what you think reading it for the first time. That's very fair. I've been reading, because I've read quite a lot of like older sci-fi over the last couple years, and so I kind of went into it thinking it would be like kind of, you know, a typical 
old sci-fi paperback kind of thing, like the same thing that everyone else is writing. And straight away, it is very different. I didn't think I'd actually like it that much, but I am really drawn in by the story already. So it's doing good. Good. And fun Star Wars fact, Kevin J. Anderson wrote later books in the series. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I don't, I haven't read them, but <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're going to move on to our main topic then. Um, Saf has finished Horizon Zero Dawn, so there will be spoilers and major spoilers after this point. So if yep. you've not played it or if you do not want to know how it ends or uh, sort of the, the answers to the mysteries, you can bail out now and come back later. Um, yeah, so Saf, I love your commentary on your gaming Twitter. It was, <laughs> I feel like that's how everyone is at the end of this game, but it was just, it was just great. So tell me about what you thought about the, the end in particular. We'll go into like mechanics and sort of overall opinions later. Like the end, end, or from like when you go to Sunfall. <laughs> uh, let's go or just from in general. Sunfall, I guess. Okay, so. <laughs> If you've, if you've listened to any other episodes of Western Reaches where I've talked about this game, like, I was I was quite lukewarm on the story. And I'm still relatively lukewarm on the story, and I realized the problem is that I really, really like the past stuff of, like, the apocalypse happening, and I just do not care about the present time story at all. Like, I don't care about the way the world is built or anything. I just want to know about the history. So once it gets into Sunfall, you start getting more into the history, and you get a lot more of the past stuff. And so I was really digging that. And then you get to the point where somebody says, true AI, and I was like, you know what? I'm in. I'm all in now. This is 100% what I needed. So I was very excited by that. Um, I really liked Silence, the mysterious voice in your ear, when they eventually show him, and I was like, oh, I recognize his voice now, because I recognize his face. Yeah. Um, he, he was really like cool. Yeah, he does. He came on, I was like, oh, it's the guy from Fringe. And then straight away, I, I totally like liked him even more, because I, I love that actor. Um, well, there's and, that scene. Oh, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's that yeah. scene where he like comes charging into the sun ring, and I did not see yes! it coming at all. And it was just like, what? and then he immediately complains about it. He's like, I had to do so much work <laughs> to rescue you. And I, I love it. him so much. He's so like long suffering, but he puts himself in these situations. Yeah. Like he didn't have to help us. He's I kind of. But he's also like a super villain at the same time, which is just a hilarious combination. Yeah, he's, like, really well in that area between he's kind of doing good things, but he's also doing bad things, but he just does it because he wants to know, like, he just wants knowledge. Like, he doesn't care whether or not it's good or bad. He's very morally gray, so, like, of course I love him. Um, he just wants quantum processing. He yeah, that's basically Anything it. for quantum processing <laughs> is, like, the whole gist of that character, which I love. It's such a different motivation, but I really love it. And I didn't... Yeah. I remember, I think you mentioned him, like, ages ago. You're like, oh yeah, I really like Silence. And I was like, I have no clue who that is. And then I eventually got to him and learned more about him. And I think you, like, replied to one of my tweets. I was like, oh, this is the character that she liked. Yes, yeah. He yeah, was, and he I can see why. one of my favorites. And because of his, his motivation was so unique and so consistent. Like, he just wanted to learn math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just wanted him to talk to me. I'm like, just tell me about math. I don't even care. I don't want to know about it, but I want you to keep talking kind of thing. Um... <laughs> I, uh, like, the reveal that the machines in the world weren't actually the original machines that destroyed everything was kind of a surprise to me. Um, like, it kind of makes sense when you look at it, because the design of Deathbringers is very different to every other machine in the game, and Corruptors as well, um, which I hadn't really thought about 
Like, I was like, they're really big and chunky compared to everything else, but I haven't really thought about the fact that they were from, like, a completely different era of design. Um, the whole, like, Gaia story of, like, the true AI who was supposed to bring the world back to life and all that stuff. Like, it was interesting, but at times it got a little, like, it felt a little weirdly magical. Um, I'm like, that's not how, that's not how science works. But also, I guess it's a true AI, so, you know, you can't actually, it's a super intelligence. You can't actually say that what it's doing isn't real because... I can't understand what it's doing anyways, but mm. at times I was like, that that's not how things work. But I guess that game at times kind of verges into science magic stuff sometimes. Like, not super much, but a little bit. It gets a little bit there. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say it so much leans on the magic as it's just really, really symbolic. Like, I still yeah. think the fact that she's called Gaia is a little goofy. Like, I understand <laughs> yeah. like, there's an in-universe reason for it. Like, she was very intentionally named after the, like, Earth goddess or whatever. But it's hard for me to take that name seriously because it's so on the nose. And also Hades as well. Like, all of the yes. names that they were using, I was like, okay, I know why you're using it, but also, like, can you not? Yeah, can you use something else? I know this doesn't mean anything to Aloy, but to me, it's really distracting. Yeah, I kind of had that problem as well. Um, I did really like the stuff about uh, Aloy's original, Elizabeth. I really liked Elizabeth. She was really cool. I liked her relationship with Gaia, because I always love human AI, like, friendship or whatever they had. It was so cute. Um... The I think my favorite part about like going through all of the old old world stuff and like finding out about the history was just hearing all the audio logs from all the people who are involved because you kind of get to know the different people who were involved in creating Gaia through those audio logs and how they react to what's happening and I really like that because when you get to the point where um the Ted was that his name <laughs> um <laughs> like betrays all of them and kills them yeah. all um when you get to that point by that point you know all the people around that room and you're like no like you can't just kill these people even though you know they're gonna die because obviously they're dead by that point mm-hmm. oh, that part was just like you can understand why ted did what he did but it just makes him it just like he he killed the, the human race twice over like yeah. it was just sort of like you're just watching him descend further and further he is straight up the worst. Like, absolutely. Oh my god. <laughs> no question. <laughs> every time, the worst. Every time he does something, I'm like, Ted, why did you think this was a good idea? Like, don't do that. Yeah, and they pretty blatantly with went with that idea that like the the woman was the one that had to kind of clean up his problems, and like he was the more warlike person, and she was the more peaceful person, and it kind of showed how that her mentality is what kept humanity alive, and his mentality is what killed it. Yeah. Yeah, I found their relationship really interesting. I liked Elizabeth as well, because she was just she was such a hopeful character, even at the end of, like, the world in general. She was always just like, we can make things better, we can help, everything will be good in the future. Because, um, yeah, like, what Project Zero Dawn is, like, you just have no clue. Like, you know it's not going to be good, whatever it is, but it's also going to, like, save the human race. Like, so you kind of, like, for the first half of the game, or well, first two-thirds of the game, you're kind of sitting there like, I know this thing exists, I know something happened in the past, but I don't know exactly what. And then you get to the reveal of, like, well, everyone's going to die, but we're going to have an AI bring up embryos. You're just kind of like, you know what, that makes a lot of sense, but I didn't actually think of that being a thing. I don't know why. I was like, are all the humans actually, like, robots? Is that what they did? They just made human robots? Um, that was my yeah. big theory going into the end. Yeah. I was like, well, obviously then Aloy is just a robot clone of Elizabeth. Um, and I was kind of half right, because she was a clone of Elizabeth, just not a robot. 
Yeah, I had that that thought too. Like, are we going to get a Terminator style reveal where they're all robots? <laughs> but not not so much. And that's like kind of what I what I said before. Like, the ending was, or the reveal rather, like of the history was predictable in that yes, it was a robot apocalypse. Like, but then it goes beyond that to say, well, it was actually kind of two separate, ro- like a robot apocalypse and then a robot rekindling of everything and. Mm. That, that idea that humanity completely died out was, I wasn't expecting that. I thought that, oh, these people are the descendants of the people who survived, but but no. It was intense. Like, it goes intensely bleak for that because, yeah, I assumed that there were survivors, but then when they were, like, actually explaining um, what happened leading up to the apocalypse, like, how how the machines then, the Far- Fargo? No. No, that's the, the pharaoh thing. machines. Pharaoh, the pharaoh yeah. machines like eat biomatter, and that's how they live. And I'm like, okay, there's literally no way that humans could survive through that. Like, there's no way. And then, like, when you learn that they do that, and that's how the apocalypse happens, it's just the pharaoh machines killing people and then reproducing and then eating all the biomatter. Um, like you understand from even the first the first part of the game where you fall into that bunker and like explore around and like hear the audio logs and stuff like you totally at that point you just totally understand why all those people chose to die <laughs> through medical euthanasia because like no way you're gonna face that like it, and you know you're not gonna survive that like at that point and i don't think i really grasped like i knew there was an apocalypse and i knew the robots were bad but i didn't because of the robots you encounter through the game i didn't quite like understand the the bleakness of the apocalypse leading up to like what happened and when you finally learn and like hear the audio recordings and see all the other stuff you're just like oh my god this is this was real bad this was really really bad like this is worse than i imagined bad yeah you kind of realize like that the pharaoh robots are buried right they're dormant so they could mm. be underneath anything like the hills you were walking on there's probably robots under there like it's yeah it's pretty pretty dark but the darkness was kind of what made the ending so meaningful to me because it really was so hopeful and so kind of looks the ultimate disaster in the eye and says we can recover even from this and that was the ending was was really powerful to me that idea of people being able to bring back the earth and the people protecting the earth and like i'm into the whole environmental thing so it was very timely yeah and i thought that it was really lovely um when it shows gaia like learning and the plans for her and how she's creating these robots herself to rebuild the planet and she's basing them off of like fauna and dinosaurs and stuff because she thinks it's really cool and she thinks they're awesome and i'm like that's just like a hopeful ai to have like bringing the planet back that she genuinely loves like the people and the animals and then you kind of i kind of got a different like interpretation of the machines after like learning about that i was like you guys are here to help but now now something like bad is happening to you but like their actual like they're like what's the word i want not tribute but um yeah like a tribute to the past and the earth itself which is really beautiful yeah and like the fact is that the designers did not have to explain why the robot dinosaurs were shaped like dinosaurs like i think almost any like game player would be fine with oh they're just dinosaurs because dinosaurs are cool but like they yeah. intentionally explained that no like they're a deliberate homage to extinct species and that just like it added so much emotion to it 
Yeah, I loved it so much. I love. I actually did like I. Uh, I have the the story is still kind of lackluster for me, but I love all the stuff adjacent to the main story. Like I love all the lore about the robots and the AI and what happened in the apocalypse. I just don't really care too much about like Meridian and the Kaja and all of that stuff isn't really relevant to me because it's not really my style of storytelling, I guess, or it's not my genre really. It kind of it it's a weird intersection of like. I don't really know. It's not tribal, like the the stereotype tribal kind of thing that this game is kind of telling, along with the really cool sci-fi that I really like. Um, I did like going into mechanics a little bit and like narrative design. I did have problems with um when you get to the like when you first go to Sunfall, you see the sun ring. You're like, okay, yeah, obviously I'm going to end up in there, like obviously. And then when you get to the point where you actually end up in it, like. As soon as I saw her in that cage, I was like, okay, obviously I'm going to have to fight something in the sun ring. Um, and then when I killed the the, be- the behemoth that you're supposed to fight, which, that was a really stressful battle, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that was the I- first time I fought a behemoth and it was no fun. Ooh, that being the first time would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> no fun allowed. Yeah, um, after that, when, like, the corruptors and everything are coming for you, like, the way the cutscene was directed, for me, it was really obvious that Silence was going to come in and save me, so that kind of ruined the surprise for me, because I could tell by the way it was framed that that wasn't actually going to be a battle, um, but that's just me also being a nerd um, and analyzing things more than I should while I'm playing games. But I also, because I was really stressed out that I was going to have to fight them, so I was like, please don't be leading me astray with how you're framing the story because I really don't want to fight these things. Yeah. And when Silence came risking me, I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God. There were enough of them that I, I figured you weren't going to fight them. I guess maybe maybe I had a moment where I thought the Nora might rescue her. Yeah. But yeah, I can. I wasn't quite as savvy as you were. Yeah, which is, like, fair, because I, I go out of, like, I don't really go out of my way, but as I'm playing games, I make an effort to analyze what's happening so that I can, like, learn from what it's doing as well, um, which kind of went a little bit, I, I think I went a little bit too much when I was playing Horizon, because, I don't know, I don't know why, I think because I, like, was really into it that I just kind of, like, over, went over with analyzing it. Like, I kind of had the problem as well that I sort of spoiled myself for different parts of the game just by exploring the world a lot, because I went to the Spire, and I ran around there, I was like, this looks a lot like a boss battle area, and so when the game started getting to the end, I was like, and I hadn't been to the Spire yet, but I was going to the area in the snow, I was like, okay, obviously the Spire is going to be the final battle. Like, I kind of had that mm-hmm. moment in my head, and when I got there, I was like, well, I kind of knew that. Um, and But it was kind of good cause, because I went there earlier and I looked around at being like, this is going to be a boss battle area. So I went around and like explored it a little bit to learn how it was laid out. Um, and then also because I went up to the snowy area where the where Gaia's like AI was or something, um, I went up to the earlier to get advantage and then I fought the thunder, the Stormbird um, and I killed it. And then so when I went back there, the Stormbird wasn't there anymore. And I was like, thank God, because I was really worried they were going to redo the cutscene <laughs> and make me fight it again. <laughs> Um, but because I'd gone there and the way it was lit and the way it was set out and because I had that little cutscene with the Stormbird I was like obviously this is near the end game somewhere Um, so like it was a little bit like I'd somewhat spoiled myself for the story but not really what was in the story I just spoiled myself for where the story was going to go in certain ways which I think is kind of a problem when you have an open world game that has a like a fully open world game that has a linear kind of story is that you're gonna in some places kind of get to something and be like ah okay this is for this part of the game because of how it's laid out um which i think is an interesting challenge with games like that and i i 
I also did the thing because I basically did the entire map and did like all of the collectibles and everything before I actually even like did Meridian story at all. So I I was still at the early parts of Meridian by the time I had the entire map uncovered. Um, and so I found it really interesting to watch as I had the map, I, I would watch where the story would lead me around the map. And like, it does do a thing really well where it kind of brings you to different areas of the map at certain parts of the game and then has different like machines in those areas at a different difficulty levels to like kind of introduce you to different parts like slowly as you're playing if you play through the story as the story which I thought was really good unfortunately I didn't actually do that so <laughs> I just I I made an effort to notice where it did it because I actually I had like an argument with a friend the other day who was like no no you don't actually uncover that much of the map if you're just playing the story I was like yes you do like you go to each corner of the map you do everything um and I eventually won that argument because I was right. But <laughs> I I found it really I, – I really liked how they did it. It was really cool. And the map is just really good because it's, it's not actually giant. It's relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but it feels really big. And each area is so dense with so much stuff that you never feel like there's nothing happening in an area when you're walking through the map and exploring the wild. It's never boring because there's always a machine around the corner. I love it so much. So what would be the alternative for that? Like, do you think an open game would, or an open world game would lock certain areas away until, like, the boss battle is ready? Or would that take away from the entire point of the open world thing? Like, what have you seen other games do to, like, prevent that? I think what Horizon did is probably the best I've seen, honestly. Because, like, even if you can go to, I think... The biggest way you can make, like, change it in a way that works so you don't go somewhere and be like, oh, this is a boss battle or this is somewhere that's story important later on is to build those levels in a way that they're not typically those areas. So, like, the spire is very much set out like a boss battle area. Um, if you build that in a different way and kind of built the battle in a different way. But, of course, that makes a game, like, it, it's a way bigger challenge to that kind of stuff as well. So, like, Horizon, I think, is the best I've seen of this. Dragon Age Inquisition kind of did the lock off different areas until you can go to them thing. And it wasn't a true open world game either. Um, but that also had its own problems that it doesn't feel like an open world game. And the areas in that were quite spread out and not very dense like Horizon is. Um, the other alternative is to do like kind of modular storytelling. And so each area has its story that kind of can be told in separate ways to tell the entire story. But then when you're doing something like Horizon, you want that linear story that you follow through. Um, and I mean, like, yeah, I have my issues with what Horizon did, but I think it's done it like the best possible way it could have. Except that I still don't see any point to making like this random interactive choices in the game because they don't mean anything. They don't really do anything. Hmm. So you mentioned the Stormbird earlier. Um, I got to... Oh, what? Wait, sorry, I didn't say anything. Okay, you were breaking up a little bit, but... Alright, um, so I'm at a part where I had to do a couple different quests that involved the Stormbirds just in another part of the area, and I found myself dispatching them relatively quickly. Like, it was a long fight, but I didn't die during it. Like, it was... I, it was... I was making good progress. So, and I wouldn't say that I found it annoyingly easy, but it definitely, it was sort of, I wasn't really afraid of them anymore. And some people, I've heard some commentary saying the game gets too easy toward the end. I've heard some people say um, it stays difficult. And um, probably my favorite, like, commentary is that it's not that it gets easier, it's that you get better at it. So, like, I went over to a friend's house, and he was level 26 or so, and he had, was having trouble with 
a battle and I went in and did it in one go because I knew how I had my weapons set up in a particular way and like I knew the rhythm of that area. It was the, the Deathbringer that the stationary one. Oh yeah. Um, oh no, not the stationary one. The the first mobile one, but it's in a round arena, so it doesn't really go that far. It just kind of yeah. circles around. Um, so when I and I beat it, you know, relatively quickly. So the level was the same, but the sort of the degree to which I was used to the skills were different. So and and that was I think it was like a commenter on the AV club or something pointed that out. So I can't take credit for noticing that. But after I actually <laughs> played with my, on my friend's account, I noticed it. Um, so what did you think about the difficulty, the scaling of it? I think I completely agree with it, that it's not really being overleveled or anything. It's just you getting better at the game. Because I was playing on hard mode, um, originally super hard, but I went down to finish the story faster. And it's uh, like at some point I was like, maybe I should turn it back up to super hard mode. But the problem is that the mode difficulties, for me, it just seems to be the amount of damage you take from something. Um, so I kind of kept it in hard mode just to have that kind of regular challenge that I already had. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely like you kind of learn how the beasts work and you just you get better at using your weapons, you get better weapons. I kind of had this moment where the difficulty suddenly went down, like it dropped a lot because I realized that I'd just been using arrows for like every single battle. And I realized that if you use the rope caster and like the bombs, you can take down a thunder draw way faster than if you're just using arrows and also without dying because you're not using arrows. Um, and that I think learning to use the different weapons in different ways also can drop, yeah, drops the difficulty because suddenly you have all these other alternatives for fighting. Um, I think the, my, I really, really hate like the last push of the game because it doesn't really make an interesting challenge. It just throws a whole lot of machines at you and then expects you to kill them all. And when you're in hard mode, it's really, really hard because they do a lot of damage to you. And I'm really glad that I got the power armor. Like I went out of my way to get the power armor before the final, the final thing. And I'm so glad because I would have died so many times in that final battle if not for that. Because, oh my God, that thing is, that thing is amazing. Um, I don't like, I don't like the final boss battle at all. I hate it so much. But I think, I think, yeah, it's entirely that you just get good at playing the game. Hmm. And that boss battle, like, I talked about this a little bit the last time. I think that was my one big criticism of the game, too, that the, the actual, like, the end of the story was fine, but the actual thing you fight was kind of anticlimactic because it was just a Deathbringer and a bunch of machines you'd already seen before. It wasn't anything particularly, um, particularly new. And, like, how did that thing get up there anyway? <laughs> yeah honestly <laughs> like did it walk up the ramp i don't i don't think so <laughs> like, they airlifted <laughs> maybe i don't know i didn't even think about that i was kind of expecting like a half buried like metal devil or something but then yeah. when i realized it was at the spire i was like no it can't be a metal devil because there's none near there um yeah it was a really anticlimactic final battle but Deathbringers are just a pain in the ass like there's, uh, they're not fun to fight. There's nothing fun about... Most of the beasts, like, there's a funness to it. Like, when you encounter a Thunderjaw, you're like, I know how to take this down. Like, there's fun ways of doing this kind of thing. And you go in, and it's an interesting challenge. Deathbringers are just boring and also not fun. And because I was playing on, like, hard mode, like, the Deathbringer would do a lot of damage to me, and then so would all the other machines that came up. Like, Corruptors do a lot of damage, and everything else that was there. And especially because they were corrupted beasts, they did more damage, and it was just like... I kept getting really overwhelmed because there was just so much happening and it wasn't, there was no fun challenge to it. It was just, 
a lot of stuff being thrown at you all at once and no real way to like step back and try and like plan out an attack for what's happening and for a game that put a lot a lot of like pressure on the importance of stealth early on the actual story-based battles never need it at all like it's not ever relevant which is really annoying because i like speak to myself towards spell stealth not stealth um and then i got to like the final battle or the final battles in general and stealth was just useless it meant nothing and i was like this is how i've been playing this game why are you doing this to me yeah, there were some bits where you kind of thought you were going to get more freedom. For me, it was the uh, the missions where you have to kill all the machines in one particular area, like the, the oh, invasion yeah. of the Glenhawks was the one. And you couldn't, like, if you override them, they don't count as having you having cleared them out. So I wanted to override them, but because they'll eventually go back to being wild... You like that won't complete the mission for you. You have to kill them. And I thought, like, well, I've got all these interesting, like this, you know, this technique I can use, but I can't actually use it to complete the mission. Yeah, and stealth becomes useless in those ones too, because like the moment you shoot one, they all see you, and then they come for you, and you're like, what is the point? Why do I have stealth? Why is this even a thing that I'm allowed to do if you don't actually let me do it? Um, oh, God, I hate fighting Glenhawks so much. They're my least favorite thing. So annoying. Um, <laughs> So it, it sounded like the other thing that both of us were kind of bored by was the the hunting grounds quest. You, so you yeah. didn't do it. I I barely I've barely done it. I don't I've done like one of them. Um, and like, I did like the story quest for that, but I didn't do like the lodge things. So I haven't finished the story of that section, like where you're trying to become part of the lodge or whatever, because yeah. the hunting grounds were just. The things they asked you to do were just not fun. <laughs> like they, they were kind mm. of like they're just putting unnecessary um, obstacles in your way. And I didn't feel that there was enough uh, tension, I guess. Like the idea of this land where the machines are super dangerous, but also people just keep them in these hunting grounds. Although, like, they're not, they're more like preserves, right? They're not caged. But uh, yeah, for, yeah, for some reason, for whatever reason, that particular quest. I love a lot of the side quests, and that one just didn't grab me. Yeah, I like the story quests because I like the lady you become the hawk. She's your hawk, I think. I don't yeah, remember what the yeah. words were. Yeah, I like her a lot, so I kind of did it. And also because like the moment I kind of started the quest, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to fight the giant Thunderjaw, and I really want to do that kind of thing. So I followed it through just for that, basically. Um, and if you finish that quest, she ends up becoming an ally for your final battle, which is really cool. Um, but I didn't do any of the hunting. Like, I did... I think I got a couple sons or half sons or whatever from like the first hunting ground you ever encounter. Cause I was like, Ooh, what's this? This is exciting. And then I did it. And I was like, you know what? This is not fun. I get it's trying to teach me like interesting different techniques for the game, but I also just don't care enough to do it. And I don't want to like constantly redo the same little bit over and over again just to get a really good medal. And I hate timed missions anyway. So I was always like, no, I don't want to do something if it's timed because screw this. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also like, why is the final battle timed? Like, I kind of get it, but is it timed? Is there a time, a countdown from the start of the battle? Because I only noticed it when I had a couple minutes left and it started flashing red. And I was like, did this just start? Or was this here the whole time? Like, I literally don't know. I don't know. They definitely mention it. Like, after, like, in the, the dialogue, like, after a mm. certain amount of time, the thing, the signal is going to go off. But, yeah, I, I actually only really started paying attention to the timer toward the end, too. 
Yeah, like, I didn't even realize if it was there or not. And I guess it's because the entire game constantly, like, has things like, this is going to happen soon, and, like, this is really important, you need to do this immediately. And it doesn't actually mean you have to do it then, because you can go to other quests. And so when they actually, like, when they were saying before the game, like, you need to do this quickly, or before the battle, like, you need to do this fast, and when they mentioned in the battle, like, it's going to happen soon, like, it's going to do the signal soon. And I was like, all right, cool, it's going to do the signal soon, whatever. That never actually means anything. And then the timer came up, like, or it started flashing or whatever, and I noticed it, and I was like, oh my god, there's actually a timer. (laughs) Oh no. It stressed me out. I hate timers in games. So you never met my actual favorite NPC, Bryn, did you? I don't think so. The the funny thing is that he's not part of the all allies trophy. Like he doesn't come to the final battle because at the end of his quest line he just leaves. <laughs> so <laughs> but <laughs> he's like, I've had prophecies of the end times, I'm out. I mean um, that's really fair. Yeah. <laughs> But I love him, and if you haven't done the Acquired Taste quest, it's weird, it's it's fun, I feel like the writers had fun, like, yeah. And he's yeah, Banuk, I'm kind so of- all my faves are Banuk. Do you pick it up from, like, the Banuk village? No, he's um in the west sort of area, he's got his own little camp. There's a ton of machines out front, which is annoying, but he's in, like, near one of the mesas in the northwest. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I must have totally missed that because I did all of the quests I had and I do not remember doing that quest at all. So I must have just ran past him at some point and been like, I'll pick that up later and then never did. I, I missed it the first time around too. I ended up doing it after like after I finished the game because I'd seen some uh, like gifts from it and I went oh, like, yeah. I have to do this because it looks yeah. so strange. I really want to do it. Like after I heard, saw you talking about it on Twitter, I'm like, I really want to do that now. But I don't. I don't have the PS4 at the moment because um, I was borrowing it. So I'm like waiting for the DLC to come out because then I can borrow the PS4 again and also play that quest. Yep. No yeah. Release date for that yet? But if you pre-order it, you get a Banuk Aloy avatar. Ooh, that's really cool. Yes, I pre-ordered it. A couple <laughs> days ago. Of course. Yeah, I think the side quests of that game were really impressive because they were all different and the characters in them were all very, like, they weren't entirely fleshed out, but they felt very strong as their characters. So, like, doing side quests never felt like a drag. It was always exciting to do something new and see the story of that quest, which I really like because usually when I play, I don't play open world games that much because I always hate them. Um, There's too much to do and it's very overwhelming and the quests are boring and this didn't have any of those problems. Like it brings you into the open world quite slowly and lets you explore it at your own time and the quests are good and the characters are interesting and it was just, I did like everything. Like by the time I finished the game, I was like level 50. I'd hit the level cap basically. Um, I think I was level 49 before I went to the battle and then hit 50 during the final battle. Um, I, like, did all of the collectibles. I'd done almost all of the quests that you could do. I, lo- oh, wow. like, knocked off all the quests that I had in my journal except for um the hunting grounds because screw that. So, like, I'm probably, like, 90, 97% of the way through the game or something because I've done, like, everything. Um, and so by the time I finished the game, I was like, wow, I really, I really just played that game a lot, I guess. <laughs> sure, sure did play that game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got really into that game. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. I, I still have some stuff to do. I've been I've been doing playing Andromeda and doing some other things, but I still have the hunting grounds quest to do. And uh what else? There's a couple other side quests that I haven't done that'll tide me over until the, the DLC comes out. But yeah, it's it's just really fun. It's just like it's very um responsive, I guess. Yeah. And the world feels like its own world. Um, one of my friends a while back tweeted like a video that she caught 
of a snap, snap more, snap jaw, snap more, um, like shooting all its chill water off of itself and then like fanning out its panels and just basking in the sun. And I saw that video and I was like, I was like, I'm going to find a snap more doing this. Like, I'm going to track this behavior down because I need to see this in person. So at some point I like went to, I went to get like a metal flower or something and I kind of hid up on the cliffs around the snap moors and just watched them for a while. And one of them did it. I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. That is like a, a behavior that they do. Like it does. It straight up just shoots all of its chill water off of its back and then it just kind of lies down. And it's really cute. And I felt really bad about killing it because I really needed to get past it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's awesome, because they have, with those especially, it's really obvious that they have solar panels on their backs, which I thought was a cool detail. Yeah, I really liked it. And yeah. in hindsight, the fact they actually had solar panels on their back is, like, a good eco thing. Like, that doesn't seem like it would be a bad monster, <laughs> because no, it's got, like... it explains how they can, how they, you know, where they get their energy. Yeah, I love snap moths. They, they clean the water. They're not bad monsters. They are. They're all. They're all good. It made me feel worse about killing them all after I, I know, knew that they were supposed to be good. Especially the stormbirds, because I'm like, this is like this thing's gonna mess up the whole like the weather for this area. Like, yeah, killed their weather. Yeah, but taking them down just feels so good. It's uh, well, they're they're great and they're gorgeous. They are. I love them. I love them until they fight me, and then I'm like, no, you're the worst. Yeah. <laughs> like, they they're not the, tail, the hard- the tail swipe thing. Yeah. They're not hard to take down, but they are- they are big and do a lot of damage. Um, yeah, I really want to just, like, wander around and just watch the machines do their thing, because they are really- they're just really cool, and they just kind of exist as their own little thing, and then you come and ruin everything, and it's just- <laughs> the world- it's just beautiful, and it exists in its own right, and I really love that. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. It's a, yeah. it's a good game. More people should play it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's a really good game. My biggest problems with it came from me overanalyzing it as I was playing it. I think if I could have detached myself from that while playing it, I wouldn't have had those issues as much as well. But it's like, I haven't spent that many hours playing a game in a million years so that says a lot about it and like i agree with you that the the structure like if you just describe the plot without going into any detail especially the beginning that like after <laughs> the proving it, it <coughs> improves um <laughs> yeah if you just described it without any detail it, it sounds like a pretty stock story but then you get into the way they write the individual people and the way you exactly what happened and it becomes a lot richer it's a stock story told very, very, really well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the last thing that I wanted to point out today was that, Saf, you have a project. You are starting a podcast network, right? Yes, I am. I'm starting a podcast network called the Not Saf Work Podcast Network because I couldn't come up with another original name. Um, <laughs> it's going to be on my site, notsafwork.com, and there's also an iTunes feed for it, which I guess I'll put in the show notes of this episode. Um, there's going to be podcasts. There's a podcast about Wonder Woman called The Lasso. The Lasso. I don't know how to say that word. There's one about like mythical beasts and fantasy creatures, which I'm really excited about. There's one about speculative fiction. Um, that one that amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's one that I'm on, which is going to be about just random stuff from the perspective of three nerds. Not nerds. We are nerds. Three writers. Um, it's going to be about the creative process of different things. Um, oh, there are other ones too. There's a there's an RPG podcast. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, so if you like podcasts, if you like 
diverse voices and like weird content that's kind of that's kind of the point of that network um go check that out i am also still accepting pitches for other podcasts on the network so that's also on my site if you go into the podcast uh category there um i'm really excited about it. the launch date is on july 1st but there's already an episode of the lasso out which is like a special preview episode talking about the movie so go check that out excellent so you said they'll be available on your site and on itunes anywhere else um they're also on soundcloud if you search not Safe work podcast i think they're on there i'm gonna get them they're on whichever apps use the itunes library already i need to figure out the difference between which ones do and which ones don't um i'll be submitting to feed burner and other stuff soon so it should be everywhere soon cool all right um so i think that's that's all for us um you can find me at blogfullofwords.blogspot.com or at blogfullofwords on Twitter. I write for starwars.com, Star Wars Insider, Den of Geek, and a few other things. You can find me on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-N-D-E-R-L-E-W-S-T-I-N. You can also find me on my website, notsafwork.com, and I also do some writing for Toshi Station, so I'm around there sometimes.